Okay, welcome Bob. Allar tala núna. Gjör svo vel. Good evening, I'm Bob and I'm an alcoholic. To the grace of God and the power of AA, I haven't had a drink since the 10th of December 1967, and for that I'm very grateful. It's good to be back. Uh, Congratulations to the people who uh, got the big books, and I hope that one of the things I I wish we would start a tradition in AA is when they get those books is to have them back the next year, hoping that they are celebrating their first year of sobriety. Sometimes we give those books and we, we don't make that request. I always wish that we would use that kind of leverage, the specialness of that, and have them come back and maybe give it to the person who's got one day and say that I was in the audience with one day and I got the book and I was able to stay sober. That would be very powerful. We have had a wonderful time. You have been wonderful hosts. And I think what has been most wonderful is watching AA in operation. I travel all over the United States, and I have traveled to a half a dozen different countries or more and given talks. But when you see the same book, the same steps, the same program, the same sponsorship, you know, uh, it just is... There's something so wonderful about seeing it in all the different places. It's just kind of the universality and the sameness of it and the, and the power that came out of our program. Our program was uh, four years old, a little over four years old, when the book was published in April of 1939, and we only had 100 members. But after the book was published, our growth became exponential. You know, within a matter of two years, we were at 8,000 members, in March of 41, after the Saturday Evening Post article, because of the book, because we could send the same message to people and start groups with the same program. And prior to the book, we had to have a body. We had to have someone who was sober go do that, and that was slower. So it is wonderful to see uh, the energy and the growth and the vitality that I see here tonight. Much of what I'm going to talk about In my AA talk, I've already talked about today. I'm going to pretend I didn't talk about it today. (laughs) And I'm just going to give a talk. Uh, Linda, would you stand up? This is my wife, who I'll be referring to from time to time. (laughs) And she has uh, 36 years in Al-Anon, and that's been a a great comfort and a great support to me. I started drinking when I was uh, 13 years old. I was an insecure kid. I was uh, 4 foot 11. I was the second smallest kid in my high school class. I weighed 95 pounds, mostly mouth. (laughs) And uh, as I said, I felt like everybody else got to school early and held a meeting to decide what to do for the day, and I always missed the meeting because it felt like everybody else knew what to do, and I didn't know what to do. I was, you know... And most of us feel that way. I didn't know that. I thought I was the only one who felt as insecure as I did. Uh, I wanted to belong. I wanted to be be in the in-group. You know, uh, I got to be a marginal member of the in-group. I, I was in the group thinking that as long as I did what you wanted me to do, I could be in the group. And then I went out and I had my first drink. And when I had my first drink, my life changed. It was just wonderful. It was just 
Uh, I didn't feel like I was a member of the group. I felt like I owned it. From, the, from that time on, I became a social drinker. Anytime anybody else said, I'll have a drink, I said, so shall I. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, I went to a military high school, uh, very strict, uh, on a college campus, and we drank a lot. Uh, I had a class of uh, 120 men, and in our 120 men, I think we have 12 members of Alcoholics Anonymous. There was a lot of lot of drinking, but a lot of recovery. It's astounding about recovery. Uh, I got into a lot of trouble. I didn't think, you know, everybody was telling me I had a problem drinking, and I thought my problem was I was underage. Uh, <laughs> because when the police caught me or my father caught me, I got in trouble. And I thought, hell, you can get in trouble having one drink when my father caught me or the police caught me. I never wanted to get in trouble having one drink. So, I, you know, when I drank, I drank a lot. And I thought I drank a lot because of it didn't matter how much, you know, you were going to get in trouble. You might as well have a good time. <laughs> and uh, uh, by the time I finished high school, I had a reputation as a drinker. Uh, I was the fellow with the false ID cards and... I would dress up and put a tie and a coat on, you know. I didn't reach puberty till I was 30, so I didn't look very old. But um, uh, I drank a lot. And I thought when I, w I had a chance to go away to school that I wanted to get away from the police and away from my parents and away from the strictness of it. And I thought that, when, you know, my heroes were those Second World War people that came back. My father and his friends, they were the group that went, you know, uh, during the Second World War. And they made life look wonderful. They were, you know, they started businesses, they had big families, they just, you know, they drank hard and they played hard and they made life look easy. And, and they were our models. They had cocktail parties, they had parties with bartenders, and we had, you know, and we copied them. It was like playing house, you know, we would, you know, we would, you know, sneak booze out of our parents' parties, you know, and go do that. And uh, when I went away to school, uh, my drinking got out of control. My drinking didn't get normal. I all of a sudden found myself, uh, I drank my way out of the University of Notre Dame middle of my senior year. I mean, I'm, I'm in the yearbook. I have my class ring and I don't finish school. I, I am the, I'm the class drunk. They use my room as a study hall because I'm never in it. <laughs> and uh, my parents didn't think that was so funny. Uh, <clears throat> The thing I will mention is that if sometimes your sins will be revisited on you. We have three boys that are in the program of AA, and that's how my, my, my last, my middle boy, that's how he went to school. That's a repayment. That's karma, you know, the, for what I did, you know, that I have to have him. Uh, I just couldn't shut my drinking down. I didn't, you know, some guys could drink on the weekends, and some, I thought I had a, I just drank all the time, and I was, uh, I was a sad kid. I just didn't, you know, I didn't like school because I wasn't doing it. I was going to school one day a week, you know. It's kind of hard to take 25 credits in civil engineering going to school one day a week. Kind of tough to bluff your way through a thermodynamics exam, you know, even for an alcoholic. Uh, and finally, I just had, had it and I quit. And uh, when I quit, I was due to be commissioned as an officer. I was an ROTC, and I had to get a medical release or I would have been drafted as a private. And the medical release I got was for alcoholism. I was diagnosed an alcoholic when I was 19. Not too many psychiatrists thought pe people who were 19 were alcoholic, but I ran into one who was 
better informed than the average psychiatrist. And he did some work with alcoholics, and he... Would you give me a cup of that? Coffee? And uh, he diagnosed me as an alcoholic and recommended that I either go to treatment, which there wasn't much treatment, but there was Hazelden and a few other places, or that I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought that was stupid. My idea, I didn't think, you know, I was looking for a diagnosis like neurotic that would get me out of trouble but not make me quit drinking. And, uh, you know, so I, I left school. I came home. And when I got home, uh, I finished. I went to another university, and I finished at the university. And when I finished, my father asked me to leave the house. He said, we love you, but you're a mess. And there are six other children in this house, and we don't need a mess as an example around the other kids. And uh, armed with my college degree and my new freedom, I went out, I got a job at a, at a liquor store. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I'm in trouble again. Everywhere I go, I'm in trouble. Thank you. Uh, I can't figure out what's wrong with me. My friends, you know, I think I drink like my friends. Well, I don't drink like my friends. I drink every night of the week or most every night of the week. My friends drink one or two nights of the week. I drink after my friends go home. You know, I drive my friends home. And I'm there's one or two of us that are out drinking after everybody else is home. I don't, but somehow I think I'm not different. I think I'm the same, and I'm not the same. And I know I'm different, but I'm, I'm just so unhappy. I don't know what the hell is going on. Uh, they tell me that my problem is drinking. Well... I've had periods where I didn't drink. Before I went back to school, I was almost killed. I got uh, in trouble. I got beaten up, and I got robbed, and I got rolled, and I got pistol whipped. I got shot at. I got thrown out of the second story of a hotel. And uh, I was uh, ended up in a hospital, and they were put me in a psych ward. They were going to evaluate me and not, not let me go back to school. And I talked my way out of the psych ward, and they let me go back to my senior year at school. And I didn't drink. And I didn't become an A student. You know, they were telling me, if you don't drink, you're going to be fine. If you don't drink, your life's going to be okay. Your problem is you drink too much. Don't drink. It'll be okay. It was absolutely not okay. Uh, it was horrible. And... Uh, it was even worse, you know, that I'm sitting there not drinking, and now I can't do, you know, at least before I could blame it on my drinking. Now I've got nothing to blame it on other than me, and I don't really know what's wrong. And it, it just seemed hopeless. And uh, so I had had periods of sobriety or periods of abstinence, and they, they didn't work. And so I didn't believe people when they told me that, I was, that booze was my problem. I thought booze was my answer, you know. I thought booze worked pretty well. It was a pretty good friend to me for those 10 years that I drank. Uh, so this was during the Vietnam War, and during this last year of my drinking, I was trying to figure out what branch of the service to get into, and so I, I wasn't doing much with my life, both because I was a drunk and because I was trying to get in different branches of the service. And... Uh, I took a job as a waiter. I worked at tables, and I'm drinking a quart a day. I'm just a mess. No one knows where I am. My family hasn't seen me in five or six months, uh, which is fine with me. I didn't want anybody to see me. I'm, uh, I get into a fight at a party. I get my face messed up, and they fire me as a waiter. They don't want me as a waiter serving food, looking the way I look. 
So now I don't have a job. I have no place to go. I go back to my family and ask them if I can move back in the house. And they don't know what to do. They are at the limits. I mean, they have tried, they've tried to get me every kind of help that a family can get someone. They've tried psychiatric help. They've tried church help. They've tried legal help. They've tried medical help. And there's, you know, it looked like I was trying to kill myself. I mean, it was baffling about, you know, why are you doing this? It looked like I was suicidal, that once or twice a year I'd crack up a car or I'd, you know, get beat up or, you know, do something stupid. And I'd, uh, my family would say, why are you doing this to me? My father would say. And I'd say, I'm not doing it to you. And he'd say, baloney, you're not doing it to me. He said, you left this house sober. You promised me you weren't going to drink. You said that you were going to drive my car. You weren't going to drink. You come home at 4 o'clock in the morning so drunk I couldn't walk. I had to drive. And, <laughs> and he thinks sometime during the night I said, the hell with you, I'm going to drink. That didn't happen to me. Sometime during the night I thought, I'll smoke a couple of cigarettes, I'll have two drinks, and no one will know. It's 8 o'clock, I'll have two drinks, I'll be home at midnight, and no one will know I had a drink. I took the two drinks, and the person who took the two drinks didn't remember anything about the conversation he had with his father. The person who took the two drinks didn't remember anything about the last 192 times I had took two drinks. <laughs> you know, you have to be an idiot not to know where that's going to end up. But I was an idiot, and I didn't know where it was end up. And I moved back in the house, and I now I'm the family drunk, and I'm the problem. Everybody's giving me the look. You know, my brothers and sisters are giving me the look. I have a sister who did graduate school at the Sorbonne and a brother who was Phi Beta Kappa in law school, and I'm lodged in between those two show-offs. And, uh, and I don't look very good. And uh, uh, I tried to change my life. I thought that if I could get back together with Linda, Linda and I had gone together for a couple of years and uh, broken up for the last year of my drinking. I thought if I got back together with Linda and we got married, that would help straighten me out. I thought if I could get a real job, that would straighten me out. And so I got a job as an executive trainee at this manufacturing company. I bought my first car, and I thought, wow, it's good, you know, I'm finally going to be a grown-up. Only I couldn't stop drinking. Now I'm, you know, now I'm at a corporation and they want me to work on Monday. They want me to stay on Friday. They want me to not drink during lunch. And I am in trouble. Now I'm the company drunk. I'm falling asleep at my desk. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm in bad, you know, I'm out of control. This is not working well. And I know I'm in trouble. And it was, uh, I leave the job and I get a sales job. And now I'm selling and I'm not, you know, I'm a mess. One of my friends gets married. We go out in about a week drunk. And uh, I wake up one Thursday afternoon, haven't been to work in three days, haven't talked to Linda for a couple of days, and we, the girls were giving us the rings back. You know, they were upset with us, and they were kind of on the edge. I didn't know if she was just still going to be my fiancé. And my family hadn't seen me in a couple of days, and I thought maybe they'd throw me out before I got married. And I, all of a sudden, the recommendation that I call AA didn't seem like such a dumb idea. I was out of ideas. One of those days where you look in the mirror and you just can't quite believe who you are and where you, what you're doing with your life. And I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and they sent two men out to meet me at a cafe. 
And uh, after I had talked to them, I was uh, I called work and found out I had a job, and called Linda and found out I had a fiance, and called home and found out I still had a place to live. And I thought, why the hell did you call AA? <laughs> That's, that's an overreaction. And, uh, uh, but I was curious to see what an alcoholic looked like. So I went to go meet these two guys. I really was. That's, there was no denial with me. I just wanted to go see. And when you're young and in trouble, they put you in front of a lot of experts. And when you're in front of the experts, the experts always ask questions, and they talk about you, but they don't talk to you, and you're, you are not part of the conversation. Your family may be part of the conversation, but after they ask a bunch of questions, they come through with recommendations. And I thought these two men were going to be like that when I went to meet them. I thought they were you know, going to be like experts or something. And I went to go meet them, and one man had six months of sobriety, and one man had six years. And they sat me down in a booth, and they said, we're from AA. They said, we had a drinking problem, and AA helped us get sober. And we're here to share how we got sober. We hope it helps you. But if it doesn't help you, for some reason, it helps us. <laughs> you know, they weren't getting a toaster for signing me up, and it wasn't a multi-level marketing deal. It was just a 12-step call. These two men sat me down in a booth, and they told me their drinking story. And I had, in all the times that I had talked to people to try to help me, I had never talked to another person who had a drinking story. And in a matter of a half an hour, they had me captivated. And when they were done sharing their story, they had changed my life. They had changed my life. There's a power in sharing your life with another person. I'm glad that we have the tradition of not sharing our ideas or our, or our philosophy. Okay. that we share our experience and our strength and our hope, and there's a power in that, and there's a magic in it, and those two men changed my life. And they asked me to go to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that night, and that was in August, July or August of 1967, and I did. I drank twice after that night, once on a business trip to the West Coast, and I got in trouble. I didn't go to AA. I was told to go to AA, and I didn't. And once on our honeymoon, I had three months of sobriety, and I think I planned to drink on our honeymoon all the time. I didn't have it consciously, but I had it kind of set aside. And we honeymooned in Mexico. And you know where the divers dive off those cliffs in Mexico? I dove off those cliffs on my last drunk. I was in the audience watching a world's high diving contest. I thought, God, that's not so tough. <laughs> and... Uh, I dove off the public landing, swam over, climbed up, you know, took off. I had a swimsuit on underneath my Bermudas. I split my swimsuit. I cut my leg. Linda is going absolutely nuts. And I get up about 85 or 90 feet, and I'm stuck. I can't get up. I can't get down. And I'm watching the waves come in and out. And I'm, you know, trying to figure out whether to jump or dive. And I finally figure out the hell with it, and I dove. And God watches after fools and drunks, because I made it. And... uh Ten years later, we started vacationing down there with the kids. And ten years later, on my tenth anniversary, Linda gave me a picture of the chasm at La Cabrada. And on the bottom it said, there but for the grace of God. And, you know, and uh, had I jumped, I would have died. I didn't know that. You can dive. You have to get out almost 30 feet to hit the gym. I didn't. I may have known that by looking at it, but I didn't know it as information. 
you know, so jump, I die, dive, I may die. <laughs> you know, and I said to Linda, that's the stupidest thing I've ever done. And Linda said, Bob, it's not even in the top ten. Uh, <clears throat> so, so we have a different view of life. I don't a few years ago, I was gaining weight, and I said, I have to exercise. I think I'll get a bike. And, and I got a bike, and she got upset with me. I got a Harley. <laughs> she, um, so even when I try to please her, I don't always please her. So it doesn't work out. The, um, so I had my last drink on the airplane on the way home from our honeymoon. So we haven't had alcohol in our house. I mean, we've had alcohol for friends and Linda drinks. But we haven't, I've not been a drinker since December the 10th, 1967. And um, I was ashamed to go back to the group, and Linda said, oh, for goodness sakes, call your sponsor. So I, when I got off the plane, I called my sponsor, and he was very nice, and we got together, and, and I went back to the meetings. And when I went back to the meetings, uh, I was always, when you're young and in trouble, they always talk to you about potential. I don't know if they talk to you about potential in Iceland, but when you're not doing much with your life, they talk to you about that you have so much potential you should put it to use. And I was, uh, I didn't put much to use. I was holding it in reserve. And um, I thought that if, now that I knew what was wrong with me, that my life would blossom. I thought that now that I, you know, I got the problem, AA's got the answer. If I've got the problem and AA has the answer, all these other things that are problems are going to go away. You know, and hell, they should, you know, maybe go away in a year. Well, my problems didn't go away in one year, and they didn't all go away in two years, and they haven't all gone away in 36 years. <laughs> I had a set of problems, along with my drinking, that were horrible but ordinary. I had, I had problems getting up in the morning. I, I later found out that had to do with when I went to bed. But at... <laughs> but... But at... At that time, I did not know that. Uh, I had serious financial problems. And uh, I spent about $300 more a month than I made in 1967. That's not much money today, but in 1967, it was a lot of money. And I later found out that you can get in debt by spending more money than you make. I didn't know that then, but I, I now know that. Uh, I had, as time went on, I had some issues with marriage that Linda had expectations of me because of her experience at her home that were different than mine. You know, she had a father that came home every night after work and they sat around and they talked and they went, you know, and I would kind of pass through. You know, I would, uh, I would come home at about 5.30 or 6 and Linda would broil something because all she could do was broil. You know, as long, we could have it as long as you could broil it. And um, she was a nurse, and she would get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to go to work, and I'd still be in bed. I'd go to the AA meeting every night, and I'd come home at midnight, and she would be asleep. So she saw more of me when we were dating than when I was sober. And so she wasn't all that happy with all this AA stuff. She was happy I was in AA, and she was happy I was sober, but she, did, she thought this was enough is enough. This is a little too much. And then later, she thought maybe I ought to practice the program at home which I thought was none of her business. And, uh, and, and, she's, and she's going to Al-Anon, and she's not very happy about going to Al-Anon. 
she she doesn't we're not married and she doesn't know why you know well I guess by this time we're married and uh, she thinks that she doesn't have to go and she's not very happy but she's going and then we started to have kids and I had trouble a little bit with being a father not so much immediately but later when my kids were six and seven and eight years old I was loud impatient angry and sometimes violent with my children I'm not proud of that fact but that was my father was sometimes violent with me and I, I don't say that to blame my father I say it as a piece of information my father was my hero he was a wonderful man but a human man not a perfect man and I broke the chain of alcoholism in my family I am the fifth generation alcoholic my father got sober in AA after I got sober my children are getting sober. So our family now has a different way to deal with alcoholism than drinking themselves to death, like my great-grandfather did. I also hope that through the program, I break the chain of rage. I break the chain of excessive anger. I break the chain of physical abuse, you know, that there isn't that... That would be also a wonderful contribution and a good use of the program in all those affairs. And I think that there's that possibility and that hope in in that. Uh, And I had a gambling problem. It was more of a hobby, four or five hours a day, four or five (laughs) days a week. But I made between five and $10,000 a year playing backhand. So it was kind of like a second job. I mean, I really viewed it like a second job. And I had all of these problems from the day I walked in AA, and I never noticed them during my first year of sobriety. I mean, it's really unusual. It seems stupid to me now, but I, I was on a honeymoon for my first year. I came in and I was so excited about AA and the steps and everything I heard, and I was on a honeymoon, and I had, I didn't have much insight into my life. I did a fourth and fifth step, and none of those problems I just told you were on my fourth and fifth step. I didn't, do the formula in the book. I did it by other methods. And my first four step was kind of a, fifth step was kind of a recitation of the worst things I had done. It, it was helpful to me, and I wouldn't go back and redo it because it, I did it with a good attitude. I just didn't have the right form. And um, so it was during my second year. Now I'm going to five or six meetings a week. I got a sponsor, got two sponsors, and I'm working, I'm working on the program, I'm working on the steps. And uh, by the end of my first year, I started to get a sense of what my defects of character were. I started to get a sense of my money problems, of my marital issues, of my work issues. In the next year or two, when my children would come, I started to get a sense that I had some anger around that. You know, I didn't, they were still so young that I really didn't, that wasn't an issue then. And... So little by little, I started to get a better sense of what was not working, and I started to try to work on it. And I thought, well, I'm an AA. It's going to be okay because the AA program is going to restore me to sanity. That scared me as a young person because there was no place I wanted to be restored to. I said, don't take me back any place I've been. Take me someplace new. I don't want to go back to any place in my life that I have been. You know, uh, that isn't okay. And... uh, but what happened to me is I would work on these issues and I would make little progress. And during my second year, I identified my problems. During my third year and fourth year and fifth year, I worked on them pretty hard and I didn't make much progress. And by the end of my, but starting into my sixth or seventh year, and I'm not sure of all these times, I was very unhappy. 
I was in as much trouble at seven years of sobriety as I was at one year when I came in. I had paid off all my debts, and I was back in debt at seven years of sobriety as much as I was when I came in. Um, my job was in trouble. Uh, I used to say, but I didn't have marital problems, and Linda said, yes, you did. You just didn't know it. <laughs> but there was nothing was working very well. And I, and I, I had started to lose my hope because I'm doing what I think I should do, but it's not working. And I started to think maybe there's something very wrong with me. Maybe I have to go to Gamblers Anonymous. Maybe I have to, you know, if I had to go to a program for every problem I had, I was going to be a busy kid. And, uh, you know, and uh, I knew part of the answer was, was to get a better spiritual program. And the problem I had with the spiritual program was that I'd go ask God for help, and God would say, what do you want? i say, I want help. I'm, you know, I'm seven years sober, and my pants are on fire, and I need some help. And he's going to say, I'll help. And then I'm going to say, what do I do? And God's going to say, get up in the morning, go to work. Stay at work. Work at work. Don't spend more money than you make. Get on a budget. I hate that word. I think that's an Al-Anon word. Budget is a tough word. It's a... Be kind and loving to your wife. Be kind and loving to your children and stop gambling. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what you think God's going to tell you to do. And I thought, hell, if I could do all those things, I wouldn't need God. Okay? So my problem was, what's the sense of going to God for help if you can't do what God's going to ask you to do? I was stuck in that place for about two years. And that's not a joke. I was stuck bad. And around the time I'm eight years sober, I'm thinking about suicide. Isn't that great? Eight years sober, you know, 32 years old. Everybody, you think you think I'd have the world by the tail, but I, I'm thinking of killing myself. And out of desperation, I went back to the steps, and I found out what step one had to do with me. Eight years sober, what unmanageability, powerlessness, and unmanageability. I was very powerless, and my life was clearly unmanageable. The step that blew my mind was step two. I believed it for, you could put my hand on a lie detector and said, do you believe God's going to restore us to sanity? And I'd say yes, and the lie detector would not move at all. But if you said, do you believe God's going to restore Bob to sanity? The answer is no, because I'm eight years sober and my life's going backwards. I lost the belief that God's going to restore me to sanity. When you're in trouble, you either get more active or less active, and I got a little bit more active, and I started to see people with smiles on their faces, with bigger problems than I had, walking through those problems that I was trying to avoid with dignity. And I started, I came to believe again that God would restore me to sanity. I took step three on my knees with my sponsor in his office. We didn't do much of that in those days. It was done more today. But I didn't want to miss anything. You know, uh, I'll digress for a minute. I, I talked about this earlier today, but I had built a wall up between myself and you. I had built a wall up so that you couldn't see what was wrong with me. The first thing drinking robbed me, it was a little bit extra that it took to be a success at anything that I did. And then I started to take the hop off my fastball. And I started to cover up so you couldn't see the bad. 
And the thinking that went on behind the wall said, you like me, but you only like what I let you see. If you could see everything about me, you'd hate me because I hate me. And who knows more what a lousy, crummy, insufficient person I am than me. I was walking around comparing my inside with your outsides. When I first went through the steps in Alcoholics Anonymous, I tore down that wall. I felt very unique. One of the things that is very hard when we come in, one of the things that kills most alcoholics when we come into Alcoholics Anonymous is the feeling of uniqueness. If you feel unique, you're not going to identify. You're going to look for the differences. If you don't drop that sense of uniqueness, you are not going to stay. Okay? Well, sometime during the early part of my A experience, I tore my wall down. And I said, hey, come and get me. I don't care who you are, where you come from, but come and get me and help me not be who I am anymore. I can't stand me five more minutes. And for the first time in my life, I shared everything in my fist up. Now, prior to that, I would kill you with the piece you didn't have. You'd come to me and you'd say, Bob, I think you should do this. And I'd say, well, <laughs> there's a bunch of things about me you don't know. I'm not going to tell you, but you don't know. And because you don't know them, I, can, I don't have to take your advice. And I, no one knew everything about me, so I could neutralize anybody who tried to help me. But when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I tore my wall down and I shared everything about me, and I made a discovery. I'm not unique. My personality may be unique, but not my illness, not my behavior, not my experience, not my feelings. And I started, when I tore that wall down, I started to have a sense of hope that what would work in your life could work in my life. Prior to my tearing that wall down, I believed I was different. When I tore the wall down, I became enough alike that I thought what worked for you could work for me. But during the next years in Alcoholics Anonymous, when I was sober and had problems, I built that wall back up, sober, going to five meetings a week. I would have problems with sex. I didn't want to talk about them. I'd put a brick up. Thank you for helping me with my drinking problem. But stay out of my marriage. Stay out of my work. Stay out of my... Brick by brick, sober in AA, I built this wall back up. Now, I'm t I have a sponsor. I'm talking to my sponsor. I tell my sponsor about 65% of what's going on. I know in Iceland you tell them 100%, and I think, very good. But I was telling them 65%. I was only telling myself 65%. I wasn't honest enough or in touch enough with my life to be able to really even know exactly what was going on. That's how stupid I was. And... Uh, it was too painful. I was not strong enough, or I mean, I were all strong enough, but I didn't think I was strong enough. I was denying the stuff and pushing it away, closing my eyes and not dealing with the stuff in my life, hoping it would go away. And so now at eight years, seven or eight years of sobriety, I'm re-surrendered. My, my problems are back in spades. I'm powerless. I'm unmanageable. I have to admit the fact that I don't believe God's going to restore me to sanity. I have to re-find the second step. I rediscovered the second step. I took the third step on my knees with my sponsor, and I was like new in AA. I took my fourth step, and I did my fifth step with my sponsor. My prior two fifth steps were with clergy, which was the way we did it where I'm from. And when I was done with my fifth step, I said, be careful, whatever you recommend me to do, I'm going to do. I said, I feel like I'm dying of thirst lying next to a lake. I said, I feel like I know all the answers, but I can't live it. You know, I know where the water is, I can't get to it. And I said, I am so tired of being me. 
I am so tired of not being able to live life that I just can't tell you how tired I am. I'm, I think I'm ready to do whatever you would have me do. He wanted me to go to a psychologist. I did not want to go to a psychologist. I thought that was an admission that my program had failed. But I, pro I told him I'd go, so I went. Psychologist got my wife involved. I didn't want my wife involved. It was, you, you get your wife involved, it's hard to lie. <laughs> uh, you lose a lot of control. And uh, he wanted my kids involved. I thought the kids are young, but okay. And uh, I can remember we went to the psychologist. He turned out to be a great psychologist. And I'm in this office, and I'm in it about our, our fourth or fifth week. And he looked at me and he said, I've got, my business is going down the chute. And I'm, I'm working one or two hours a day. I don't know why I'm in trouble. And it is. And he said to me, why are you so afraid of failure? And I wanted to tear his nose right off his face. I said, look, you jerk. I explained. <laughs> You're a doctor. I said, when you fail, you just take your little sign, go down the hall, pound it on a different door, and within six months, you're making a hundred grand again. I said, I'm in the real estate investment business. I'm about to go bankrupt, and I'm going to lose everything I have. I said, nod your head up and down if you understand. Everything I have. And he looked at my wife. And he said, Linda, if Bob lost everything he had, would he lose you? And Linda said, nope, wouldn't lose me. He looked at Billy and Peter, and he said, if your father lost everything he had, would he lose you? And the kids said, nope. If you can't lose, you can't play. I was a guy who was scared to death and did not know I was scared to death. I was the salesman who couldn't make sales calls. I just falsified sales reports. I didn't even take the chance that you would grab me by the throat and pull me across the desk and make me sell you something. I never showed up. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was... I was afraid of being a husband. I didn't want the responsibility. I was afraid of being a father. I, the, when my wife told me she was pregnant with Bill, all I thought of is half my income's gone. <laughs> I didn't think, hooray, I thought... <laughs> She was a nurse making as much money as I was making, and when she gets, she has the baby, she's not going to work. And I mean, that's how scared I was. I didn't know, you know, and it seemed like everybody else knew how to do those things. What I know now is no one knows how to do those things. No one's ready to have children. No one has enough money to have kids. You know, you, you just do those things. And somehow you grow and you change and you make the adjustments in life. I didn't know that then. I mean, I knew I didn't know. I just didn't know you didn't know. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was just, I was scared to death. I was afraid of failure. That's one of the things about school. I never tried at school. I was, I'd, I'd rather had you assume that I was very bright and a drunk, rather than put it on the line and really study and see what I could do and find out maybe that I was ordinary. I didn't want to find out I was ordinary, so I didn't work. Okay, and I ruined my college career. I thought maybe I could have been an attorney like my brother, but not with the way I went to school. Okay, And uh, 
So I found out by going to that psychologist that I was scared to death of life and scared to death of everything in my life. And I had done three inventories, and I didn't have any. I didn't do them, the fear inventory very well or very insightfully because I didn't have those on my fear inventory. Not too long after I had uh, been to the psychologist, I had one of the worst days in sobriety. I went to work late. I left early. I got into a backgammon game. I won $800. I missed dinner. I missed the AA meeting. I came home. I got in a fight with my wife, and I slapped one of the kids. One of those days, you'd like to have it videotaped and sent to the general service office of AA to show what eight years of sobriety can do. (laughs) Or have your sponsor walk in the front door and see how things are at home. And I sat down in my chair and I said, gee, it happened again. And I said, it happened again. Weren't you there? And I said, yeah, I was there. But I said, these are, these problems are so habitual that it's like I go into a blackout. It's like I don't even have to think about these problems. It's like they just happen automatically. And all of a sudden I realized that was a bunch of crap. My life was the way it was because I designed it the way it was. I sounded like I wanted to quit gambling. I wanted to gamble whenever the hell I wanted to gamble for as much money as I wanted to gamble and not have problems because of gambling. I wanted my life, my wife's love and affection without spending time with her. (laughs) I wanted my children's love and affection without spending time with them. I wanted money without work. Not a very good design. (laughs) And all of a sudden I realized that I had tried pretty hard to change my life. Not perfectly, but pretty hard. And I had failed. And then a thought came to me. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's where you're supposed to be. And I got down on my knees. (coughs) And I took the six... And the seventh step. The sixth step said we were entirely ready to have God, not Bob. God. (laughs) Yeah, you laugh. Very few of us are asking God to remove our defects of character. Most of us are trying to manage it on our own. To have God remove our defects of character. And then then we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. I had spent eight years pretty seriously trying to get rid of my defects of character. I don't have the power. I have the responsibility I do not have the power to get rid of my defects of character. The power comes through me. I am the pipe, not the well. It's the power from my higher power. It's the power from my God that comes through me. A doctor doesn't heal. He creates an aseptic environment and creates an atmosphere in which healing can take place and God heals. A farmer doesn't grow. He plants a seed, creates a fertile soil where growth can take place and God grows. And we don't change. We create an atmosphere in which change can take place, an atmosphere involved in the six and the seven step of the attitude of being honest, open-minded, and being willing. And when we have that attitude and our, and our, our hearts change, God changes us. And that night I got down on my knees and I asked for help. I took the six and the seven step and five of the major problems I was dealing with in my life left that night. Such is the power of God, and such is the power of the six and the seven step, and such is the power of the program. Now, I'm a guy that when I change, I need help. When I go on a diet, the first thing I do is go buy a quart of ice cream and a bag of cookies. <laughs> it's already been a bad day. I'm just gonna have, I'm just gonna finish off the day. I'll probably never again have cookies. 
So many of us have made promises we've not been able to keep. (laughs) And I have made a lot of promises I've not been able to keep. And I knew that. And so I put some supports in place. I hired someone to get me up in the morning who I respected. She called me every morning for two years at 5.30 in the morning. I'm not a bondred person. And I, I went to church at 6. I never, you know, I got up for her. I never missed a trip. I never missed a handball game. I never missed a hunting trip. I just missed work. I turned the finances of her family over to my wife. I went on an allowance and I gave her my paycheck. She had us out of financial trouble in nine months. She could pay a third of a bill, damnedest thing I have ever seen. It was like rocket science. Uh, she does not have the ego issues around money that I have. Okay. Uh, I started to date my wife. I've dated my wife for 25 years. I've dated my wife every Friday night. I had her love and affection. It was everybody else's love and affection I needed. Okay, But I had to learn how to be with my wife romantically. We were out. We were talking about kids and money all the time. And we were fighting. Well, that wasn't how we fell in love. So I had to get, so we'd go shack up in Chicago. We'd go away and we'd have fun and we'd do different things so that we started to have some time to ourselves. She knew every Friday night was a real, live, dangerous day. No one else went out on that. That was our time. I didn't do any AA things on Friday night unless I was on a trip. And when I went on a trip, I took her out one of the other nights of the week. That's the best thing we've ever done. I spent thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours trying to learn how to be a better parent. I think being a parent takes 125% of whatever you got. There's... Not a very large instruction manual on being a parent. Most of us are doing it like or not like our parents. And most of us have far more conditioning than we would like to admit. And your father jumps out of your mouth. (laughs) Very scary thought. And that night I quit gambling. That was a second spiritual awakening for me. It was an enormously powerful experience. Up until that time, I felt like a failure in AA for the last two or three years prior to that. I want you to know today that I think that is a relatively normal experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've heard a lot of people here say, I was in AA for three years or four years, but I wasn't doing the steps, and then Joe and Charlie came, or whatever, whatever happened. But I want you to know that I think it is relatively normal for people to come in AA and make a lot of change in the first year and then flatten out and not make much change in year three and four and then get uncomfortable and have to recommit and, and, and do a new inventory and find out about the things that just weren't so obvious. You, you aren't smart enough to do a good enough inventory in your first year. I mean, it, it's important that you do a good inventory. But you are probably not going to discover all the causes and conditions of your life in that first year's inventory. In my opinion, you are going to have to wait sometimes for five or six or seven years to have enough depth of understanding and experience in your life to understand the persistence of the issues in your life to do that next big piece of work. And I'm not trying to lay anything on you. I'm just telling you, you know, I'm not trying to be like a doctor. I'm just telling you that... I. 
if, if I lined up 200 guys and girls that were 20 years sober and said, how many of, of your pants caught on fire between 5 and 12 years? I'll bet you 80% of the people in that group said, mine did. I can't tell you how many people have gone through the lines when I talk at different parts of the country to walk up and say, I wish I would have heard you. <coughs> I went back out. I got drunk. I couldn't stand it. The pain was too great. I came within an inch of doing that. I'm so glad <coughs> that I was given the grace not to go back out. Not everybody makes it back. You know. So I want you to know that I think this program is for living, that it's a total answer, not a partial answer. That it is, you know, that's why it's so powerful. It is, it is an opportunity to, t- to, to take your life and be who you have the opportunity to be in your life. An alcoholic doesn't get a life. You ever see that movie, Rudy? That guy went to Notre Dame. I passed through. I passed through. You know, my family spent, you know, 30,000 bucks for me to pass through. You know, uh, it's just nuts. It's just nuts. I went back down. I, they, Notre Dame asked me to go down and give it. I gave an AA talk down there when I was about 15 years sober or 20 years sober. And it was like, uh, it was good for me. I went down. I thought I was going to do some amends. The amends didn't work out. But I saw these young men. I was, I mean, I was 17 years old and immature as hell. But by this time, I have a child 17. And I could picture this immature kid. He wasn't ready to go to college. I wasn't ready to go to college. My mother said, I wish I would have held you back a year. But she sent me to school early because she had seven kids and she wanted to get the older ones the hell out of the house. Well, I mean, which is only normal. Who wouldn't want to, you know, get that done? After I had this wonderful experience of seven years of sobriety, my life took off like it was on a rocket ship, and for the next ten years, everything I touched turned to gold. I made millions of dollars in the real estate investment business. Some of that was because I was lucky, and it was a wonderful time to be in the business I was in. Sometimes luck is... No, I worked hard. All of, you know, I'm, all of a sudden, the guy who couldn't work is working hard. We built a company with 500 employees. We we bought a lot of real estate and put them in partnerships. And I bought the big house and two Mercedes, a big Mercedes and a little Mercedes. And I bought them with cash. And I was, I thought I was, uh, I just thought God was blessing me because I was such a wonderful member of AA. <laughs> oh, how would you like to be in meetings with me? Uh, show up in the Mercedes and the big suit and the tie and the, oh, I was, you know. And, uh, you know. There are problems with failure. There are problems with success. You get arrogant and you don't even know you're arrogant. Okay? There's problems with ego. All of a sudden you're making a lot of money and you think you can have anything that you want. You want a car? Go get the car. You want a house? Go get the house. All of a sudden, you think your wife should behave differently. You think people should do what you think they should do because you're a big deal. They do what you do. They do what they want you to do at work. Why can't they do what you want them to do at home? All of a sudden, your arrogance is everywhere. That was my deeply shallow period. 
1986, they changed the Tax Act. And between 1986 and 1992, I lost $8 million and gained 40 pounds. I went broke. I negotiated my way out of bankruptcy in 1992. I was under my desk in the fetal position crying. I mean, I was a basket case. Losing that money was not like changing clothes. It was like tearing the skin off my body. I so identified with my success, I just couldn't believe I lost it all. I thought, listen, you asshole, how could you lose it all? Wouldn't you lose just part of it? (laughs) Couldn't you have put some aside? How do you lose it all? Just a gift. Once again, when you're in trouble, you either get more active or you get less active, and I got more active. That was when my middle boy went to treatment. My middle boy was in school in Colorado, and he came home for Christmas, and he got drunk, and he totaled out our automobile, and he got arrested for drunken driving. He ended up in jail, and then he ended up in treatment. It was his Christmas present to Linda and I. And uh, after he went to treatment, he was in a halfway house, and I used to go to this halfway house for meetings every Friday night. I start to cry when the meeting started. I would cry all the way through the meeting. Can't you see those guys in the meeting? (laughs) See that guy over there? He's got 25 years. How would you like to have what he has? (laughs) I think he's got the clap. I don't know what the hell he's got. It was just horrible. I was just, I was depressed. My kids in treatment, I've lost all my money, you know. It'll never be okay. Uh, my spiritual advisor was working with me about trying to be okay about losing the money. My biggest fear was, is, is even if I did the work that AA and God wanted me to do, my biggest fear was I'd end up poor and happy. <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to be poor and happy. <laughs> That was not okay with me. <laughs> I'd almost rather be rich and unhappy than poor. <laughs> I had to find out who I was with money and find out who I was without money. I don't think God had the real estate collapse to give, teach me that lesson, but I think that was the lesson I, was, I needed to learn in the real estate collapse. There isn't the thickness of a piece of paper of the difference between success and failure. Many of the successful people are lucky. It's a fate. It's good fortune. Not every, I mean, it isn't like there isn't work. It isn't like there isn't intelligence. But I was lucky. Very fortunate. Very blessed. I made the money, I lost the money, and I made most of the money back. If you're going to be sober a long time, you're going to have ups and downs and you're going to have problems. I am so glad that I have persisted in my program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm so glad that I've been able, through the help of the steps, to be able to stay in relationship with my wife and stay in relationship with my children. Mostly, I am glad that I've been able to stay in relationship with AA. If you're going to be in AA 20 years, you're going to get periods that are very tough. You're going to get in fights with some very important people in your AA group. You're going to have some very important people hurt your feelings you're going to have some major problems in AA. 
and you have to be able to resolve those problems so that you don't leave the very thing that is helping you live your life. Your life is more important than the conflict with those people. And you have to learn how to resolve conflicts, even difficult conflicts. And you're going to have some conflicts in AA, and it doesn't mean that you have to leave, and it doesn't mean AA is horrible. It just means that it's populated with people. And people sometimes don't treat each other very nice. Over the last 10 years, I put my business back together, uh, and today my life is in pretty good balance. I have a great relationship with my kids. I'm kind of ending my career. I'm mostly getting out of the real estate business. I still have, I, I can't get out of all of it, but my son, my oldest son works with me and my partner. Uh, we have a home in Texas, and we split our time between Minnesota and Texas. Uh, I'm doing a lot of AA, and we're doing a lot of travel. Uh, so I guess what I told you before, earlier in the day, was that we are more resistant to change than we think we are. Most of us think we're ready for change. But the fact is, is what we're looking to change is the machine we built for survival. You know, they talk about where the brain activity is for addiction today, and it's in the lizard brain, the old, oldest part of the brain we have. It's in the part of the brain that we associate with survival. We have alcohol and drugs filed under A for answer. That's in our hard drive. <laughs> you laugh, baby, but I'll tell you, we've got all the evidence in the world that it's not an answer. But I'll tell you, every time something goes wrong, where did we go? Okay, We just boot that sucker up and it comes up, you know, with the answer. And it's always a drink or a drug. We got it filed under answer. We got it filed under survival. We got it regardless of the evidence, regardless of the people we hurt, regardless of the way our lives are going. We get, things get tough. We get in trouble. We get pushed. And that's our answer. We can't attend to life. Life is too scary and we got to cut and we got to run and we need some help and we need it now. Short term answer, long term problem seems okay to me. Media gratification, the mind of the alcoholic. Give me an answer now. Oh, yeah, but you're going to have trouble. Give me it now. It's going to ruin you. Give me it now. Give me more and give it to me now. You know, the answer to life. Most of us got a God-sized hole and we're trying to put stuff in it. And stuff is not going to get it done. We're trying to put relationships in it. Relationships are not going to get it done. The journey of AA is a spiritual journey in the last analysis. The last analysis is return us to who we are in our relationship with the God of our understanding. When that union is closed, when we have a union with the God of our understanding, we become whole. We're not different. We're not separate. We're not partial. We're okay. Our integrity is restored, and we are available to live life as life is. And most of us have great difficulty living life the way it is. We need it to be different. We need people to be different. We need circumstances to be different. It's not okay the way it is. When you reconnect with the, your power of your program, when you reconnect with the God of your understanding, when you put these steps and principles in your life, you will be okay with the way it is. 
and you will be able to find your place and use your gifts that God gave you, the special gifts, the reason you're here to play in the orchestra. Most of us never got the instrument out of the box. It's still under the piano, wrapped with the bow on top of it. Most of us never know what instrument we're going to play and have never played it. And what recovery gives you, us, is it gives us that back. It gives us our lives back. And it says, here's your present. <coughs> live your life and live it abundantly. Do whatever you want to do. You are now well and you are balanced and you are connected. You don't have to be afraid. You're okay. There's nothing wrong. You're okay. Stay connected. When you're alone, you get sick. Stay in the village. Stay with your people. Go to your meetings. Read the book. Take the steps. Enhance and maintain and enlarge your spiritual life, and you can do almost anything. I wish I had the gift to be able to tell the new people in the room the trip that they have the opportunity to take, that the answer that they want is here in this room, that it's not a partial answer about you've got to stop because you're in trouble. That's not enough. I've got an answer. I've got everything you've ever wanted in your life available to you. I've got your life available to you. And if you keep chasing what you've been chasing, you're not going to have a life. And the problem is, for a lot of young people, that's okay. It isn't working very well right now anyways. But I'll tell you something. If you get in here and you stop using and you start to take the steps, pretty soon you're going to start to hear the music. Okay? In closing, I want to tell you a story that I don't always do, but it reminded me the other day. I did, told the story when I talked at the International in, in uh, San Diego. And it's a story about a man who invented fire. And this man went around in ancient times and gave the gift of fire to villages. And he taught them how to cook their food and heat their caves and light their homes with the gift of fire. And the people turned around to this man and they wanted to thank the man and he was gone. He didn't want their things. He just wanted to give them the gift of fire. And for years and years he went around. He was a legend carrying the gift of fire. And one time he went to this rather large village and he gave him the gift of fire. And the elders of the village were upset that he was getting so much attention, so they killed him. But they were smart enough to know that they would get in trouble if that's all they did. So they built an altar to honor the man. They put the tools that he used to make fire above the altar. They held regular ceremonies that were very well attended to honor the man who gave them the gift of fire. But no one ever again made fire. There are places in Alcoholics Anonymous that you can go, that you could throw a can of gasoline and a match into, and you couldn't start a fire if your life depended on it. This is not one of those places. But I want you to know that an individual man or woman can make an enormous difference in AA. An individual man or woman can become a fire maker. 
an individual man or woman by sharing their own experience and by putting <coughs> these principles in their life can go to another person and start their pilot light. Psst. And when you start the pilot light, maybe you've changed a whole life. Do you know what a privilege it would be if all you did was change one or two lives? How many people change or save one or two lives in their lifetime? Not many. Mothers do regularly, but guys don't. <laughs> you know. So, find a fire maker. Not all fire makers are dramatic. There are some very quiet fire makers. Find a lover. Find someone who will help you love. Find someone who will help you do this program and uh, become a fire maker. I love you. Thank you. <laughs>